Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of this show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have Dr. Howard Eisenberg, and Dr. Howard and I discuss decoding the quantum reality. What is reality? How we can manipulate it? What is going on behind the code, if you will? And so much more. It's a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Howard Eisenberg. How are you doing, Howard? I'm good, Alex. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to talk to you, sir, because I, your book, uh, Decoding Reality 2, dream it or do it, but Decoding Reality 2.0, it, this is this is must-read kind of material <laughs> for people, especially if they're listening to this conversation. Um, <laughs> thank you. We're, I feel like we're going to go deep down some rabbit holes in, this, com- <laughs> in, in this conversation, so everybody mm-hmm. be prepared to have your minds blown. No pressure. But <laughs> so my first question to you is, can you talk about the abilities that you started to see in yourself at a young age? I, I remember mostly the sense of curiosity mm-hmm. uh, of everything, but one of the ways was also experientially. So I was interested as a kid in experiencing, in a sense, alterations in my consciousness like, for example, on a merry-go-round, you know, hanging over it with my head, you know, towards the ground mm-hmm. and twirling, um, lying uh, on the floor in my house. And I imagine it would be like if I was walking on the ceiling instead of the floor. So I was like playing these kind of, you know, mental games. Um, nothing, you know, spectacular about that, just maybe unusual for a child to do and maybe still have the memory of it. But that then, you know, morphed as I got a little older into my adolescence into reading uh, science fiction. I was very interested again in the speculative aspect of, of, of science and how I was seeing, you know, within sometimes years of these books coming out, which were purely fictional, um, manifesting in reality, like, um, you know, the, the whole idea of space travel, the space program, weirdly enough, even the design of the spacesuits and some of the graphics of the early science fiction movies and, and you know, uh, books. Wow. I mean, it's like they anticipated, you know, two-way communicators and all that stuff. Um, But back to your question more directly in terms of starting to experience things that are definitely way beyond the ordinary. Um, As I became more curious, partly as a through science fiction, about the relationship between imagination and reality, and in science fiction, you know, they had things like, as you may know, teleportation and time travel and things of that nature. I got curious, this is also pre-computer years, this is over 50 years ago, I'm 76 now. Um, I I got curious about trying to find some serious books on this stuff. And I remember going to some of the bigger, at that time, paperback bookstores and trying to find something was somewhat serious about looking at this scientifically. 
and I found that there was actually a form of uh, science, which wasn't well known, called parapsychology, which, which studies things that are beyond, so to speak, besides psychology as it's normally uh, thought of. And I found out there were some serious researchers, uh, one of which was J.B. Ryan down in North Carolina. And uh, I went down and actually met him. <laughs> and um, so I really started you know, getting deeper into this area. Um, so I was learning more intellectually from people like him and the literature that these things really could exist, that it was really possible for you to do things with your mind that could be not explained by our ordinary understanding of physical reality. In terms of personal experimentation, I would think I was maybe in my mid-teens when I decided to start experimenting. And some of this may freak you out. Um, I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing, right? Um, besides, all this is supposed to be impossible. <laughs> so, right. for example, I'd sit in the back of a bus or a streetcar, and I'd visually focus on someone at the very front of the bus or streetcar. Um, I wouldn't say anything. And again, I'm talking bus, streetcar, end-to-end, like so, some distance. And with the intention that they should be aware I'm looking at them, so much so that they'll like, you know, jostle their position, like when you get a little unsettled, and then turn around and look specifically right back at me at the back of the bus, not making any sound and not wearing anything unusual that would you know, attract visual attention. And it worked a uh, number of times. And then I try to make it more challenging. Here I am, the young scientist. So I would choose somebody who's, let's say, reading a book. You know, so their attention is taken by something, didn't matter. Uh, then somebody who was perhaps sitting in, in conversation with someone, didn't matter. Then I tried uh, showing other people that I could do this, like in a large, you know, uh, area where, again, I couldn't be heard or to be seen. I could share with someone beside me as a witness, watch, you know, what I'm going to do. Um, another example was uh, when I became a uh, camp counselor in my late teens. And the counselors found that about my sort of exotic interest in things parapsychological, you know, bump in the midnight. Mm -hmm. And they decided to play a trick on me. So the counselors had a, a meeting room that we would use in our off hours. And some would be appointed to just keep an eye on the cabins while we were meeting as a group. Before we came together as a group on one particular occasion, amongst themselves, they had decided to play a trick on me. They were going to start what would seem like an innocent conversation about psychic, you know, phenomena, mind over matter, and and set me up with three sort of tests of you might call telepathy or clairvoyance. Telepathy being, you know, direct contact with someone's mind, sharing thoughts. Clairvoyance being an awareness of something physically remote from you. So the funny thing was they weren't. They were only doing it to freak me out, <clears throat> not in, all, in any serious way. But they did choose three things. I got two of them. <laughs> they got freaked out. <laughs> so to answer your question, like it was so, so innocent things, you know, like that. Again, I wasn't trying to show off. I was trying to explore, is it real? And can I have some control over it? Well, then the, let me ask you, though, when you went into, you know, the the general field of, academia and mm -hmm. you know they're not very open to this stuff no they were not uh, how were um, you how did you even survive uh, so in this that that's interesting and i could give you a deep uh, answer to that too in part um so certainly the academic institutions broadly speaking were not welcoming such things and going back to the 
postgraduate research I did at Mukla University in Montreal, Canada, which at the time was one of the most esteemed uh, university departments of psychology in the world, maybe the top six. And the head of that department was Professor D.O. Hebb, who subsequently became president of the American Psychological Association. He was renowned uh, internationally. And he's the father of what we call neuroplasticity, the expression, cells that fire together, wire together, he's the guy. And now he had said some years before I applied to do this research there, that he rejected all of the evidence in parapsychological psychic research because he considered a priori impossible. He used that word a priori, like theoretically impossible. And he even said in print, and I admit this is prejudice, but you know, he was very bold about what he thought. <laughs> sure. So I decided I'm gonna do it there, back to your question. So in other words, I went where you could argue <laughs> it would be particularly the hardest place to do it. If, if the head of the department says it's theoretically impossible, how are they gonna possibly allow me to do that research? Mm -hmm. But that goes back, if you like, to the theme, the purpose, and I hope the benefit of my book, to turn your vision, what you intend, into reality. So as it turned out, um, and there's a big backstory, which I don't think you want to go into, because I go through many barriers. The university didn't want to allow me to do, I did this as a double degree. I did a degree in medicine, and I did a postgraduate degree in psychology at the same time. And they initially tried to prevent me from doing that, not just because of the research interest I wanted to do, they even know that yet. He said, no one else has ever done two degrees at one time here. So like, you know, we can't process that. And I had overcome a lot of hurdles for sure. that seriousness. But anyway, back to uh, Miguel. So I did do the research. It was spectacularly successful showing telepathy amongst ordinary people in various highly controlled conditions because they were so cynical and skeptical about the possibility of this. And, and just to add a little color to this story, it happened to be Professor Hebb, the chairman's secretary, who was the one who typed up my actual thesis. Mm -hmm. And I would go into her office once in a while, which was adjacent to his, um, for proofreading, you know, to make some minor corrections. And on one occasion here, we're getting to the end of this process. And I was talking to her, he walked out of his office and she said to him, she called out and she said, Professor Hebb, you were wrong. ESP is real. This research proves it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Now, within one year, there was a meeting of the American Psychological Association, if I remember this correctly, in Montreal. And for the first time, he admitted the possibility of these short-term telepathy. And then he, you know, went on and as I put in my book, subsequently, you know, acknowledging yeah, we can't explain this stuff away. There's too much evidence. So let me ask you this then. Uh, and, and this is just a straight question because we mm -hmm. talk about decoding reality. Uh, mm -hmm. are, are we in the matrix? Uh <laughs> well, okay. So so in a way, yes, but not the way it, it's sometimes being put out there, you know, in a popular way. Sure. So one version of that, as you may know, is that we're in a computer simulation from a civilization of the future. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um on many levels, back to your question, it doesn't make sense as the explanation of matrix, but I will tell you we are in one and I'll explain why and how, but not that one. We're not in a computer simulation of civilization of the future. Of some, third, of some 13 year old in, in 5,000. Because it goes back to, you know, as I, as I, you know, first couple of chapters, as you remember, the first one is things are not as they seem. And the second chapter pretty boldly is the only thing you can absolutely know is only one thing, you know, but your awareness. So when you talk about, an advanced civilization, having as a computer simulation and all that stuff. 
it still goes back to the more fundamental question, but, but where does the initial mind consciousness come from? Mm. So if you say they create us and we're not real, so to speak, like we think we are, but they are, but how do they have this ability of consciousness? So I, I think it's, it, 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 there's so many assumptions built into that aside from computer technology and time travel and all that stuff and why they would even want to do that. Uh, but just, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's, there's a principle in science called Occam's razor, also known as a law principle of parsimony, uh, which makes logical sense because what it basically means is the least, you know, amount of assumptions is probably the best approach to various situations if you want to understand them. The more assumptions you make, the more leaky it is, you know, of, of noise of possibility of error. So that's how I go back to it. I go like, without making assumptions, just on based on what we really know, and all of us can verify. And I try to give those examples in my book of people actually being able to do it for themselves, some of these things. That's what we have to have as our kind of, you know, bedrock to base our ideas on. But back to your question on the other side of that, because we are in sort of a matrix, but not as I said, a computer simulation. It's more analogous to a dream, like a grand dream, uh, a divine dream. And in some ways, we're sort of players in that dream to a certain degree, like the Shakespearean concept, you know, all but players on the stage, sure. um, but not like puppets, because at a deeper level, as I try to explain in my book, from many different areas of science and some of the old wisdom and indigenous teachings, there's this convergent understanding that we all come from a common source. Right. Uh, I use the example of my book symbolically of waves in an ocean. Uh, you can look at waves for a while and they're separate, like you see big waves, small waves, but they're in flux. They come in and out of the larger body of the ocean. So they seem sort of separated. It's somewhat of an illusion in time from a certain vantage point. They're really part of the, all the same thing. And I think similarly, we are like that. So I think we're in this like dreamlike world created by, so to speak, divine dreamer. So we call it God consciousness. I call it universal mind. Uh, maybe even a better word is just source, where we come from. Um, but it's a two-way connection. So it's not that we are created like as just, you know, play things, players on the stage, so to speak, going back to that. It's a two-way connection. Because we are connected to that source, we can go back to the source. You know, when, when Jesus says, it's I and the Father are one, but the Father is greater than I, again, to me, that's what he's describing. Or... The kingdom of God is within you. Seek and you shall find. And there's so many, you know, references, whether we use, you know, the New Testament uh, that many people would be familiar with here in, in America, or we use some of the more exotic other religious texts, um, or the indigenous teachings. They're all actually converging on the same picture, which is very different than our understanding of reality. And I don't think it's just important, you know, you just want to know things or academically. Because I think it fundamentally also explains why life as we know it is collapsing around us in so many ways, so many different ways of looking at quality of life. Mm -hmm. It is not looking good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and not just, you know, now for a few years, but, you know, those who have children or grandchildren, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of world are they coming into? Um, so I think there's something fundamentally wrong in the way we're living our lives because we, we've forgotten we were. the reality of where we come from. Right. and how we're fundamentally really connected. Well, this is really interesting because uh, I agree with everything you've said, and 
a lot of the concepts of the Vedic texts, uh, yogic philosophies, um, the Aborigine, the great dream, mm -hmm. uh, Maya, this is all the same concepts, yes. uh, just different flavors of the same ideas. But there, from my point of view, from having these, you know, very deep conversations with so mm -hmm. many people from around the world, mm -hmm. I see same similar things to you. I see patterns mm -hmm. of in very little, if any, disagreements mm -hmm. in the core truths. Mm -hmm. Maybe the packaging is different, yes, but the core truth is different. I agree. Yes. Um, I would I would agree and disagree with you on the sense that I feel that things are collapsing around us because mm -hmm. in one sense I agree with you a hundred percent. You could see it. It is mm -hmm. visceral. Mm -hmm. But on the other end, <clears throat> I see an awakening in people's curiosities mm -hmm. to these conversations, to these ideas that have never been here before. Mm -hmm. And I think the generations coming up are even coming in with awarenesses and ideas that they look at things that my parents did, or for God's sakes, my grandparents did. And they just mm -hmm. go, what do you, what are you mm -hmm. talking about? Um, this makes no sense. Cause I have children. So they, yeah. they just, they don't comprehend things that we tell them about in the eighties and nineties. They're like, yeah. people did what? And even now they're like, why, why is that happening? That doesn't make any sense. So there, I do think there's hope in addition, but from, I've talked to some spiritual, um, mm -hmm. some spiritual masters on the show and I asked them this and they said, all the darkness that is being brought up needs to be brought up so it can be, a light can be shined upon it. So we mm -hmm. can deal with it and move on and evolve. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of your point of view as well? Well, the reason I wrote this book was as a wake up call to the world global wake-up call, because of what I was aware of, and because I felt so many people were not aware of it, and not even having any curiosity to become aware of it, uh, and because I thought there are some of the critical lines we're crossing in terms of sustainability of quality of life, and sure. even other species here, uh, I had to speak out. I'm a doctor. It was like a call on a different level. Um, I, I agree with you that there are some people now who are becoming more reflective, more questioning of what matters. Even the pandemic has done that for many people, oh, yeah. you know, uh, realizing maybe what they've given up in terms of home life, family life, um, and even just downtime sometimes, you know, caught up in cubicles and commuting and, you know, so on in the, in the, in the previous life we used to live. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's, it's this very small minority of people who are, you know, having that um, questioning and reflection. And one of the great things right now with the technology we're on right now, with, for example, Zoom video, is that there's a lot of people connecting internationally who have that deeper interest, who previously would not have been able to come, which is ironic, using you know physical technology to connect to what matters spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, so I am seeing more more groups, you know, forming and more individuals joining those groups. But you know, it has a dark side too. I'm also seeing some oh, people yeah. who used to be people I had some admiration for as scientists, as authors. And they're, they're like going down the dark side. They're, they're getting into ego. They're getting into fame. They're getting into being a media personality. Um, and that's, you know, the wrong way, uh, the wrong, wrong path forward. Um, the, the issues we face right now, to me, are existential threats. When, when I wrote the book, the manuscript was completed in the fall of 2021. And I endeavored to make sure it was up to date to the minute before it went out, much more so than most books are. And back then I quoted the doomsday clock 
which was the alarming, you know, short interval of 100 seconds before midnight, which basically means annihilation of life as we understand it on this planet. And that was before the Russian invasion in Europe. That was before runaway inflation. That was before some of the severe bottlenecks, bottlenecks in, in supply chain, even for medications, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It was before a lot of bad things, before some of the climatic disasters in many parts of the world. I mean, as you know, the, the, the year west uh, has suffered a, a, a historic drought. Uh, there's been historic fires in, in Europe, uh, yeah. historic flooding in Pakistan. I don't want to go on a long list because it gets really down, but that is part of you know what's going on out there. And so it, it, it's so important for us think, I repeat, to be awake to why it's all happening mm. and how it doesn't have to happen. You know, I, I say in a summary way in my book, the only way out of this mess is in. Yes. And, and it goes back to how at a deeper level, you know, we're, we're all connected, or even if you want to go even before we're all at that level of total connection with each other and everything, we get into intuition. Mm. And we also get into the richness of imagination. And imagination is the source of everything that we have created as humans, right. everything. Yeah, everything. And, and, and I mean, literally everything that's been yeah. designed or created. But, so, ne- but it's so denigrated, you know, I, I started, I have many different careers as you may or may not know if you've seen my website. So I've also been a Fortune 100 trainer and consultant. One of my specializations was in creative thinking, you know, thinking out of the box, innovation. Sure. Um, and for so many people, they're so locked in to just seeing things one way. But it can be taught, we, and that's, again, part of the purpose of my book, to teach people to have more choice of how they perceive things, how they process things, and how they act, what you know, action they take. Well, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I started this show, is to mm-hmm. get information like this out there to the masses. Mm-hmm. And based on my numbers and based on what I'm seeing, there's a lot of curiosity out there and growing by the day. So... I, I, I know, but you know, I'm also a physician and I still do, I still have a part-time medical psychotherapy practice sure. and I'm hearing patients more and more come out with questions like this to me. What's the point doc? Oh yeah. yeah, it, and, yeah. and just before we started, you know, our, our, our discussion here today, a couple of hours ago, I was talking with a young university colleague who was telling me about her 13 year old daughter who said to her sort of speak similar, but she said, the planet is dead. <laughs> you know, what's the point mom? So I'm hearing that too, you know, maybe because I'm a physician. But. Maybe, yeah. And again, and I'll, and I think this is where you and I will differ a little bit. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit more of a positive outlook on where we can go. Hopeful is the better term, um, but I'm not delusional to what is going on. Well, but I, and- I, I would. I would challenge you, and who's more hopeful? <laughs> again, <laughs> exactly. I, remember, I, I wrote this book as a wake-up call for the entire world. Yeah. I don't think we have much time. Sure. So there's a critical window. So mm-hmm. I don't know if there's more, more hopeful than I am because I'm already crazy hopeful. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I'm, then, I'm very aware of the problems, but it's, but it's like I, I, you know, I try to teach both my life coaching clients and my, and my secretary patients to have what I call a half cup full mindset. Yeah. As opposed to half cup empty, or if you're like an optimistic mindset, more than a pessimistic mindset. Well, so I think it's something we can choose. And I choose that. But I'm very aware of the problem. I'm not in denial of them. 
And I agree with you 100%. I think that's it. I'm aware of the problem, but I do choose mm. the optimistic view of life, yeah. where we're going, yeah. um, without question. Uh, now, let's get into a, a field that I love talking about, which is quantum physics and spirituality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What and I'd love to ask you this because you mm -hmm. come from this world. Mm -hmm. What problem does modern physics have mm -hmm. with quantum physics? I've heard different, like they just ignore it, they don't want to think about it. You know, quantum entanglement doesn't make sense. It kind of like throws their whole world of materialism out the door. It does. So is that the is that just like it's just the one it's it's the Galileo effect essentially? I don't want to look through the telescope. Yeah. I mean, the same thing, coming back to your question earlier about the parapsychological and psychic research, which I eventually was doing in the university, mm -hmm. uh, most people didn't want to consider the remote possibility that it would, even was something that could be real, let alone, you know, studied experimentally. Is that fear. ego? Fear. It's well, fear. like, like my telepathy, for example, sure. you know, one level we could say why people wouldn't believe it and fear it. They say, oh my gosh, people could read my mind. You know, they, they know all my bad thoughts. <laughs> So a lot of people have a lot to hide that way, and we get caught up in our egos. Uh, and that's, again, part of the problem when we get into this extreme sense that we're all separate from each other. Mm. And the only thing that counts is what we can get or, you know, maturely accumulate. Right. Because we could take it all with us at the end. <laughs> <laughs> he who has the most things at the end wins, apparently. And, <laughs> and, and, and obviously, that's what we take with us to the other side. Um, that's why we put pieces of gold on our eyes uh, to pay the ferryman. <laughs> and yet, spiritually, we know that, you know, how should I say, the uh, the more direct way, the more, if you want to call it, almost guaranteed way, is non-attachment. Not to bring anything with you that you think you need of value, externally, materially. Right, and and that's the thing that, where when you get into the world of quantum physics and you get in the world of mm -hmm. modern physics, mm -hmm. materialism versus non-materialism, and which is basically the same thing we're dealing with in life, the materialistic person who wants to, you know, they're trying to fill mm -hmm. the hole inside of themselves with stuff, money, mm -hmm. power, yes. whatever, or the non-materialist who is looking inward Mm -hmm. And it's starting to open their awareness to a point where they start to see the truth mm -hmm. of we are all one and we have mm -hmm. to not non-attachment. And and you and, mm -hmm. and the higher you get into that vibration, the more enlightened you become to the point yes. where you could become an ascended master, yes. uh, you know, as they did, as many as many souls mm -hmm. have. Um, so I think the battle in the physics community is a complete example of what's going on in society. Well, I would even say, you know, in the psychology community. Oh, um, you know, as I point out, you know, the myth that the head brain, I call it, because yeah. there's two other brains in the body, as you know, I described my book, heart brain and the gut brain or microbiome, the bacteria in our large intestine. Um, they still go on in denial that there is no evidence to link brain as a producer of consciousness. They go on in denial. They don't even have a theory, a hypothesis of how the material brain can produce immaterial consciousness, not even a theory. But again, you know, they're just practicing denial of, of reality in this case. And as an aside, just a, a funny comment about psychologists. So they're, you know, the experts of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. um, when we use uh, uh, tests of creative thinking, we find that, as you may not be surprised, it's young kids, you know, several years of age, or first of all, the most creative at that stage of life. 
But if we look at professions, one of the least creative professions when we give them these types of tests are psychologists. <laughs> so they think they understand the mind, you know, but it's the exact opposite. But that's ego. It's always ego when it comes to this kind yes. of stuff. And, and by, as an aside, uh, I'm actually starting to work on a second book and it's exactly on ego, ego management. Because I think, I think the critical vulnerability we have that got us in this mess is, is our difficulty regulating our own emotions, being too carried away by them, particularly, you know, fear and greed, which are, you know, reigning right now supreme almost around the world. So I think that's really so important to learn how I, I with my clients, I talk about learning to think through your emotions, not denying and denial of them, not trying to suppress them. It doesn't work very long when you try to diet and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but thinking through them. Because emotions can also give you sometimes power, passion to do good things, but they cannot think. They are not wise. So we have to use our thinking ability to direct, you know, the energies of emotion. But most people don't understand that. They don't know how to do that. They don't even know it's possible to learn it. And I think that's why we're in the mess we are, broadly speaking. Now, a lot of the things that we, this whole phenomenon, all the stuff that you're talking about, mm -hmm. uh, this is probably within the last, I guess, 2,000 years or so that we have, and especially the last 150 years, where we've ramped up this ego materialistic yes. concept to an extreme that is unsustainable. Yeah. But if you start looking back at these old texts, mm -hmm. um, the mystics mm -hmm. from 5,000, 7,000 years, mm -hmm. the Vedics and things like that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the concepts that they were talking about seems so more so much more evolved than where than where we are today yeah and a lot of these ideas are starting to come out creeping out mm -hmm. concepts like mm -hmm. medication meditation and yoga and yeah and, and, yeah. and you know consciousness in mm -hmm. general um but a lot of the concepts that you talk about that they talk about in the vedics are concepts or even you we've been talking about mm -hmm. today uh mm -hmm. were is basically quantum physics is starting to figure out or at least starting to... Or converging yeah. with, because, you know, as I say in my book, and I quote, as you know, a number of very eminent physicists uh -huh. who have totally moved now into the camp of saying, you know, that uh, materialism is not the explanation of what we call reality. Oh, yeah. It requires the consciousness of mind. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You they don't like admitting it, but but they have, and and they're some of the most eminent as a physicist. Yeah. They're very yeah, Nobel, no, Nobel Peace Prize winner. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple of uh, I've had a few Nobel uh, laureates and mm -hmm. and, and um, nominees on talking about that, talking about mm -hmm. the consciousness, talking about how the universe that consciousness is um, what is it? primal, not primal, but it's a uh, well, in a sense, it is basic. It's like the it's, primary. It's, it's the consciousness is everything. Right. It's not secondary. For example, we, right now, conventional uh, science in the West, particularly, and the general population, they think consciousness, again, is produced by the head brain. Right. So they think, again, that, you know, material comes first. Physicality comes first. We're seeing the exact opposite. No, no. It's consciousness that dreams up the brain, that dreams up the body, that dreams but, up the material world around us. But they can't. The other they way can't. around they can't even comprehend that. It's, but they have it, dreams. So in right. dreams, we, we experience the matrix, the, the simulation in a way. Mm -hmm. But again, it's 
And then there's lucid dreaming, which I teach in my book, you know, sure. where, where you can actually learn Control. intentionally yeah. to go into the dream world and change how it unravels, whether it's to overcome a fear, whether it's to explore <clears throat> something. Well, is, is honestly the reason why, and I have, I have this debate constantly on the show mm -hmm. in regards to the reasoning why people are so resistant to new ideas, to out-of-the-box thinking, mm -hmm. In the, in the scope of science, in the scope of nutrition, in the scope of religion, in the scope of spirituality, is because they have told themselves a story mm -hmm. that they've constructed in their own mind to make sense of the world, and it's the foundation of their existence. And if, I, if I'm a Catholic and I believe in reincarnation, it starts to shake the foundation, and I yes. can't have that. So hence, I have to dis defend myself just to defend the story, as opposed to being open to ideas. So that's definitely one level of explanation and probably the, you know, the more general one. Sure. But on, but on a much deeper level, Please. you know, as I share in my book too, another explanation is if, if we're all dreamed up by divine consciousness, God consciousness, source, and as I said, it's a two-way relationship, but what's the purpose? Like going back to our understanding and more popular here in the West of God, being all-knowing and all-powerful, why would God bother to create us at all? Mm. If God has everything, knows everything, why create us? So we might say, you know, once we're created, he takes care of us or she, but why in the first place create us? And, and I think it's, it's not, it sounds strange, words are awkward here. They're <laughs> talking about things beyond our words. Mm -hmm. um, but it's almost like God consciousness, universal mind source needs us to more fully experience Reality. I'll give you an example of that. Um, you have a face. Now, you know you have one. I can see it. <laughs> but you can't see it right now unless you're looking in the monitor uh, or you look in a mirror. So even though it's your face, no question you know, to you about that, or other people in society challenging you that it's your face, but for you to see your face, you have to have some external device, be it as simple as a mirror or electronic again, display screen, whatever it might be, be able to see it. So similarly, so in other words, it increases your awareness, having this device, even though you're coming from consciousness, having this physical device <laughs> helps you be more aware in your consciousness, right? And then you can see that blemish in your face or, you know, groom your hair or whatever, and get your makeup right, depending on what's going on. Um, so it increases in a sense, empowers you. So similarly, us being extensions of divine consciousness and everything with us. There's all the sentient beings and also everything we consider to be part of nature, material world. It, it enables the divine consciousness to have even a greater awareness, an expansion of awareness. Yeah, it makes That's sense. how I understand it's the beautiful. purpose, if you want to call it that way. It's a beautiful, it's very uh, the allegory of the cave kind of ex explanation of of it because it's so funny. I was talking to a spiritual master the other day, as one does, mm -hmm. and <laughs> and uh, he said the exact same thing you did, mm -hmm. uh, in a different tone or a different way. But he said God created us as an ex it needs uh, he needs it needs us mm -hmm. to further understand itself in a way. In a way, more fully again expand awareness, right? Space. Exactly, and that we are all connected mm -hmm. to this source energy. We are not disconnected. Mm -hmm. We are, like you said, the waves, but we're all connected 
to the ocean, but it's the false narrative that materialism and society has put out that we are all separate. Very much so. And coming back to, so they said, you know, you're correct in terms of why psychologically, emotionally, we have that resistance to these realizations or accepting these beliefs. But going back to the deeper again, explanation of where we come from, why we're here. So our understanding too, I quote, for example, Alan Watts in this regard, but other teachers have come up with, you know, a similar uh, description that in a way to make this all more interesting, uh, divine consciousness, God, universal mind source, puts a certain level of inherent randomness into this. Mm. So there's a intrinsic unpredictability of how things will totally unfold. And if there wasn't, think about how boring it would become. Free will. That's I mean, free if you, will. If you, you know, you may have a favorite series on sure. whatever. <laughs> and if you had watched exactly the same episode every time forever, <laughs> it, it would be really unpleasant. It would not be something at all you'd be attracted to. So, in using Alan Watts' terminology, it's like God's creating a game of hide and seek. So, purposely, as part of the design, it's not so obvious we have that connection. And that was part of the role historically of shaman and medicine men to, to help people keep that connection, that alignment, mm -hmm. you know, with the deeper wisdom and just like, you know, the law of seven generations, you know, the indigenous teaching to think the longer picture, the okay. bigger perspective. So I think that's part of it. I think it's an intrinsic design in reality to mix things up a bit, well, to make that, it less obvious. But that's free will. That's the, that's the yes, element. We have, yeah. That's the, 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 the 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 moment of like it's random because free will we at any moment I could choose to do something you can choose to do something but from again from my understanding mm -hmm. the way our lives are laid out there is probability of where we're going to go but in many times it mm -hmm. could go another way right so then I just as in quantum mechanics right we we, we look at these so-called <laughs> particles or ways of probability and the best right. we can do is a probability of where it's going to land and what's going to be. Right, which completely mm -hmm. laughs in the face of materialism. <laughs> so then I've I've come up with this, and maybe someone else has before, mm -hmm. but I said, I asked somebody once, I go, so are we the algorithm of God? Mm -hmm. Are we the code that he is putting out into the into the into the reality of the universe? Yes. Jesus kind of... says, I and the Father want these things I do, you shall do too. Right. Yes. Yep. I mean, that's how I actually looked at the Bible. It's coded. Of course, no, no, wonder, no wonder so many, you know, so many disagreements about what it means. And if I recall correctly, there there's 40,000 different denominations of Christianity alone in the world right now, 40,000 different ones. And among them, as you may well know yourself, they don't even agree on the same Bible. They oh, don't. No. No, A lot of us just think badly they do, but they don't mm -mm. at all. Oh, God, no. And, and beyond that, I don't know they've understood it. It's coded. And has been rewritten so many times by so many different points of views and so many different. It's yeah. It's don't get me started. <laughs> so what what I liked about um, you know Aldous Huxley was brilliant, oh. and his book, which I probably call the, the perennial philosophy. And so most of us were were you know brought up let's say with different religions in our homes, maybe fewer coming from atheistic homes, but probably most of us over the years came from homes of some denomination, and we were taught by our families usually. We are fortunate. We are blessed. We're in the right one. Everybody else is the wrong one. Some are just wrong, like, you know, just not the right one. Some worse, you know, like it's, you know, devil stuff, you know, like they're totally, you know, into evil or misled. Um, and that's how we were taught about it. Like, we, so we were taught, you know, we have the right one. 
and all the other ones are wrong. You're lucky. Now, I just knew as a young kid, logically, something's wrong here. <laughs> right. <laughs> but a lot of people never went beyond that, and they still don't. You know that. You know, we, we, you know, our generation is, you know, just one of many that has followed this religion. Any member of this particular church, or you know, whatever. Um, we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So we get we get so trapped in those you know identities, and Huxley looked at the question differently, and he said. Maybe what's in common to all of these is more like the original truth signal that we should be more guided by. And so that's how he looked at it. So he looked at what if anything's in common in all of these different religions that otherwise don't recognize and don't even agree the other religions about religion, but what at the core, maybe they use different words and different parables and examples, right. but the core, what are the similar things you know, they're, they land on the same page on, so to speak, they converge on. And it's so enlightening. And it fits the latest discoveries of quantum physics. Totally. Mm-hmm. Plus what we're learning again about, you know, consciousness more broadly and ultra days of consciousness. Totally. In, in talking about different states of consciousness, what they're now discovering in meditators, mm-hmm. heavy meditators, where they're able to go down to a, frequency that they weren't even able they didn't even know about mm-hmm. it was some tibetan monks that said no no i can keep going <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's a completely and they say that the, the deeper or the more disconnected from the mind you get mm-hmm. the more access you have to the universal understanding right. like like a simple way to do that uh, and this is very simple well it's part of what i describe in my book and when i try into techniques to play with reality uh a simple technique is to just to focus on your breathing and particularly trying to change the balance of what we call your inhalation or your in-breath compared to your out-breath, your exhalation, so that your out-breath, your exhalation, is about twice as long in length and duration and time as your in-breath. And to play with that for a bit and not to strain yourself physically when you're doing this. and then have a little more of a gap between the completion of your in-breath when you fully have inhaled and before you exhale. And then have a longer gap pause between when you fully have exhaled and before you inhale. And that pause between the longer exhalation and the coming inhalation, people can feel some of the depth in just a moment of time. No drugs. No special environment required. Agreed. Agreed. I, it's happened to me. Yeah. It's happened to me. I'm, I'm, so, a, I'm a heavy meditator, so that I, I felt that. And I realize that you know the ideas I'm presenting are at the minimum provocative because it's mm-hmm. you know challenging what a lot of people just take for granted. But I think the the evidence is so comprehensive that I'm presenting and the logic connecting it. And then the experiences, I just give you one, just, you know, brief again, reminder of one. Um, if people are open to it, I mean, this does give them the way forward with hope and empowerment from that. And that's the thing I love about your book and, and what you're doing. It is giving people the power to, to do it within themselves, yeah. which is the core teachings of so many mystics and so many 
spiritual masters across the millennia is it's not outside of you. It's inward. You have to go inward to find the answers. You have to go inward to find the power within all. It's yeah. always inward. It's never, ever outside of you, ever. I know. And we now are living in an age technologically, you know, with our smartphones. Sure. Where so much of us are almost, you know, uh, addicted to our attention being outward. Yes. And I don't mean outward, just like, you know, our original environments were out and about. Uh, and I don't even mean just our screen. Because a lot of people, when they're not looking at their phone, they're still thinking about, did they get that message? You know, and who they have to message. Mm -hmm. And they check their calendar. And so even though they're not necessarily even physically operating, you know, their phone, or it's not even physically available to them to use immediately, it's still occupying bandwidth. And that's just one example. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk to you about the concept of the multiverse and parallel realities because it is something that is starting to come into the zeitgeist uh, more and more with popular movies and ideas. Mm -hmm. um, what is your take on it? And from a scientific standpoint and from a kind of more spiritual standpoint? Well, think of, first of all, historically, as you know, we've had so many different, very different cultures over the years um, in so many different ways. Um, with their own levels of technological advancement and architecture and agriculture and practices and so on. And they seem like so fundamentally different. And even now, as you look at parts of the world, it seems so fundamentally different in their ideologies and their use of technology and how they relate to working with agriculture, et cetera. But it all comes from one source. Mm. So when you ask about multiverse, well, and then going back to the dreamer analogy, of course, we, we are not the all of it. We are connected to the all of it, potentially, if we go in. But we, as we experience ourselves with some separation right now, individuality, are not the all of it. And this is not the only type of reality that can be experienced. And it's not even a question of, you know, time travel, excuse me, or the existence of aliens. I mean, right now, we potentially can go into a totally different reality. I don't want to blow your mind too much, but we can do it. Please, we'd love to blow my right love now. to blow minds here. Go because like it. it's 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 infinite. Like anything you can imagine, um, eventually in some way it can be manifested. Mm -hmm. And you know, as I point out with some very uh, I think specific examples, some of the major uh, discoveries in, in science, some of the major technological devices, the fundamental things we you know base our so-called you know advanced civilization on came and were acknowledged by the inventors in their imagination. Totally. So I repeat, everything can come from us because again, these phones are like magic, right? When you think of what you can do with them, and that's why I said like the new alchemists of our era are those who write code for these applications because mm -hmm. they're playing with, they're playing all types of things. And what are they playing with really? Information, ideas. It's not physical technology that's doing it. And our devices, as you know, in part, they're actually getting smaller and smaller and simpler and simpler in some ways. When you think of what, you know, this would have been a, a mainframe, perhaps a huge, you know, part of a physical room at one point and still wouldn't have had the speed. <laughs> so the weird part is, it's, you know, we're, we're doing these that are more and more sophisticated with technology, but the material base of that technology is becoming less and less evident or arguably required. Because we're getting closer and closer, just coming from mind alone. 
and consciousness alone. So in regards to the to the concept of the multiverse, is mm-hmm. from a point of a scientific point of view, how is that a possibility? Is there a way to explain the multiverse in a way of being able to so so here's and if you like you can call it a problem or an opportunity. Anything you can imagine yeah. can happen. Uh-huh. So if you can imagine a part and you are because you're breaking it up, yes. And it's not a question of how, I'll repeat, everything comes from imagination. We don't have to know how. The imagination shows us the way. Okay, so then let me ask you this. On the psychedelic standpoint, and what mm-hmm. do you want to talk about another realm? <laughs> Yeah, which is getting more and more popular, good and bad today, yes. Yeah, yeah, and well, they've mm-hmm. finally de- decriminalized it, and now research mm-hmm. is happening, and it's actually yeah. helping a tremendous amount of people. Can yeah. you explain, from your point of view, mm-hmm. what happens when someone takes a psychedelic? Where do yeah, they absolutely. go? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, uh, in a few respects, right? So first, let's start with, how should I say, more conventional, scientific, and popular belief that, you know, brain produces content, which is it's not. Um, so it's really interesting because when people take psychedelics, I'm thinking like psilocybin, uh, which is one of the proper ones out there, but ones like that as well, it actually reduces the brain activity, particularly what we call the default mode network, where they get too complicated neurologically, but like critical important parts of the brain that we think of that are important for our you know, higher powers of thinking and functioning, actually knocks them out. Right. So it's, by the way, deep meditation. Correct. So you know, on one level, my response about, you know, well, what do psychedelics do? They knock out the filtering of the brain. They allow you more access to the greater expanse of consciousness. Uh, in my one of my areas uh, of work, still currently medical psychotherapy, uh, there is increasing interest, as you know, in using psychedelics to facilitate psychotherapy. I think I screen froze. Are we okay? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. So they're using psychedelics to facilitate psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So I've explained neurologically, first of all, what's what's happening, contrary to what people think that enhances, you know, brain functioning. No, it takes it out of the way. But why is it of benefit clinically for patients in the proper situations? And it, I think it does require a proper situation called you know, the guide and the setting, as they call it. Because when you are under the influence of a psychedelic, even if you have unfortunately been a victim of great abuse, great trauma, uh, have conditions like we call PTSD, it liberates you from that. You realize you're so much more than your memory or what happened to you. Again, you get more in touch with that infinite resourcefulness. And it's not a temporary thing. It's like only when you're, you know, sort of stoned under the influence of these drugs, you feel that way. No, when you have the proper guide, therapist, working with you. No, you're, you're liberated from it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, I actually, I actually interviewed a, um, an Afghanistan vet who came back and Mm -hmm. he went to, uh, to South America and did three days of ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and he had PT, he had a really bad case of PTSD and he came back and he's like, I was cured yeah. after those sessions. And now he goes, now he goes to the vet or the, um, all his vet friends. And it's like, you've got yeah. to go down it, just cause it liberates you. And he didn't become like a shaman or anything like that. He's still mm-hmm. a, a military, yeah. you know, as he calls most it. People, most people, <laughs> you know, they're in the proper circumstances, they don't, they don't go insane from it, yeah. but 
if somebody was just wildly experimenting with it, it you know, it can cause harm to them. They don't know what they're doing and they don't know one to help them. That's the thing I was talking to a neuroscientist the other day about that specific thing about psychedelics mm -hmm. and what it could do. Mm -hmm. um, when I spoke to a spiritual master the other day, or you actually speaking to a yogi, mm -hmm. when I asked him about psychedelics, he's like, you, this is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. He goes, you're walking into a door that you weren't invited in mm -hmm. and you need to be careful mm -hmm. because you also aren't prepared for mm -hmm. what happens inside of it unless you have guidance mm -hmm. and you're only in there for a short amount of time. Whereas mm -hmm. the yogic perspective is you spend years preparing your awareness to get there naturally, which is what Ramdas said, because he was mm -hmm. tired of going on trips until he met the Maharishi. And he's like, mm -hmm. oh, someone who's there all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do what he's doing and, and be there all the time. Because, yeah. But I, I was, I, it was actually yeah, I was that, that neuroscientist and they said mm -hmm. the exact same thing. So people think or that the, the mind speeds up it takes it offline, which then a lot. So that's, then, then that begs the question, mm -hmm. which is what meditation is so powerful is mm -hmm. when you quiet the mind and disconnect, mm -hmm. you're able to connect to other aspects of reality within yourself. And the yogis have been talking about this yeah. and that, you know, meditators and even martial artists who yeah. even are deep masters do this. even connect, for example, like going you know, too far off to things like intuition, to gut oh, feelings. Yes. Of to course. become more aware of them, to uh, value them more highly, that sometimes they're really good cues to what's the right way forward. So what, so then we ask you, what are we connecting to? Is it the quantum field? Is it the Akashic records? Is it like, what is no, that? The, 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 those, those are all things that are more like things of which we're aware. And like, you know, one of the things I really enjoy too, and you know, some of the ancient Vedic teachings, is uh, if you know the expression I gave in the book, the knower cannot know itself. Mm -hmm. It can only know things outside of it. So we're aware of things. But back to the thing about looking in a mirror, you know, and I'll take another angle of that for a moment. So when you look in a mirror, you see your face. And you know it's your face. You've seen it before. And you, if you try to maybe move it or, or touch it, you know, you, you see it correspondingly changing visually. But although you know it's your face, and although you may be looking right at your eyes, what you see in the mirror is not you. It's a reflection of your face. It's not you. Even though it's your face and you see eyes as you look at it, for example, it's well illuminated. Those eyes aren't seeing you. You're seeing it. Now, who are you? Is it your body? And I you know I, I go through the exercise in my book. No. So when you ask about things like Akashic Records and multiverses and all that, it's all within the divine source consciousness, all of it. It's again, infinite possibilities. There is no restriction. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a, such a fascinating conversation. I know a lot of people listening right now, their minds are blown. I think we're both crazy. <laughs> no, I don't, well, if they're listening, I hope they don't think we're crazy. Um, it doesn't matter if they do or they don't. Honestly. That's how I feel too at this point. You know, I, I wrote as a wake up call. I think people really need to be awakened. Um, I'm coming from a good place. Um, I help people. I, I share by increasing awareness. But these kind of conversations, which I have quite often on the show, mm -hmm. I just look at all these ideas. This is fundamental stuff. This is just basic stuff of understanding of the nature of reality. And again, because I keep talking to so many different mm 
people from different walks of life who are saying the same things in different ways. It's just pretty fascinating to see this. And you start, and then this is the other thing too. If it rings true to you, then this is for you. Now you are ready for this information. If it doesn't, discard it and move on and live your life the way, you know, and maybe the seed is planted maybe five years from now, 10 years from now, you'll, you'll, you'll grab it as many things did in my youth that I didn't understand. Well, in my case, I feel, um, I should say a moral imperative, you know, sure. uh, as a doctor, as an educator. Uh, so even if people don't know these things, don't have an interest in it and even are resistant to it, I feel it's kind of my obligation if I'm aware of something I'm not aware of that's really critically important to them to, to try to find out. a way in a friendly way to bring to their attention. That's all we can do, my friend. That is right. all we can do. That's right. I say you can't take on someone else's karma. Yeah, exactly. You can't take someone else's karma up. Um, now, I, I, this is something that always fascinates me in the medical community. That's, mm -hmm. This is the quantum mechanics of medicine, mm -hmm. the placebo effect. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it throws everything out of whack for them. Uh, in regards to experiments, and and I still remember talking to a doctor. Like, yeah, we were we we're doing this experiment, and the placebo effect just kept throwing all my 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 findings off. I'm like, maybe you should look into that. And what is the, so? Can you explain to people who don't understand what the placebo effect is? Sure, is a concept of it, and but also the deeper power that is going on. Good, glad to. But before I do that, I'm going to just talk to you about the experimenter effect. Okay. Because placebos, we're talking about things that affect us, you know, physically or our consciousness mm -hmm. uh, in the form of some type of drug substance that we're given. But the experimenter effect refers to sometimes the unconscious or subconscious biases mm -hmm. experimenters have for a certain type of theory or hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And so they get the results they're sort of expecting. And it's a very serious problem in science generally, and particularly in psychology, what they call replication. When other people try, to repeat the same experiment, they very rarely come up with exactly the same and convergent findings. It's a real problem in science and taking psychology, the replication crisis, mm. because of this experimenter bias. Even if you assume honesty, as they, this is going to be subconscious. Now back, let's get just so the you know the power of how our mind affects things. But coming back more directly to the placebo effect, is yes, it's fascinating on so many levels. Because at one level. It's such definitive proof of what they call parapsychology, psychokinesis, PK, mind over matter. Right. So if you are given something that looks like a drug, it could be an empty capsule, it could have just ordinary sugar in it, or some other we call chemically inert substance, not going to do anything to you. But it looks like a real tablet or a capsule or a syrup, you know, whatever it might be, and is given to you in a convincing way. Many people, on average, about 30%, will have the, you know, so-called fact benefit of this really fake drug and when you give them these uh we have to do this actually experimentally we want to introduce new medications on the market they have to be proven one they have an effect they have to be, you know secondly they're not harmful and thirdly it's more effective in that effect than placebos and most drugs by contrast you might think you know a real drug is 100 percent effective no it's more like 60 to 70%. We're not even talking about side effect issues in terms of how, you know, why they could be used. So it's not like the real thing is 100%. No, no, the real thing is about 60, 70%. And there's still issues, I say, practicality. Placebo is coming around 30, 35%, but half of that. And that's an untrained people. Here's another interesting thing about, you know, their side of that. So when they do this 
in the drug trial process to before they get regulatory approval, when they're giving it to these patients, they have them fill out questionnaires reporting various you know benefits and potential side effects. And it seems quite straightforward to the you know, patients in these uh, things that they're looking for side effects because they sort of know you can get side effects from drugs to some degree. But here's the funny thing. Remember, the placebo is chemically inert. It has no effect emotionally or physically on you except what you expect, basically. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Many of them write down all types of negative side effects. You know, it gave me a headache, uh, gave me diarrhea. I got a rash. I'm not joking. Yeah. Because if you have a negative expectation, back to the power of imagination, it can manifest negatively. It works both ways. So we need to be careful, mindful <laughs> of, of how we direct our awareness and our intentions, because it can have effects. Not just on our well-being. And that is what I asked you about the placebo, because it is such a powerful lesson in how powerful our minds are. And in in without training. Imagine if we train people, yeah. you know, through imagery and hypnosis, self-hypnosis and so on. So do we control our own reality? Can we design our own reality in in, in this world? To a degree. You know, I I also use the reference of Shakespeare's comma that we're all players on the stage. And in a way, in terms of this, you know, divine dream consciousness, we are. But as you may know, in, in, in the world of, you know, acting, stage productions, um, usually the characters on the stage have assigned roles, and it's scripted in some way. And we have the pact your question, and we have the power to improvise. We don't have to be stuck in that role. We don't have to follow the script. Many of us never questioned this, but we don't have to. I mean, I myself, I've had several different careers, none of them quite simultaneously. You know, I'm supposed to be able to do that. Like going back to what I said about McGill University, doing this sort of page together, that's a long time ago. You know, can't do that. It was ever done before. Mm-hmm. Um, those are artificial, those barriers. But if you believe them, they'll be real for you. Go back to Plato's cave. So then we are, we are all given a part in this life, like an actor would be given a part. Yes, but, but we, we have the opportunity. It's two ways, right? right? To reclaim our ability to improvise suddenly. Correct. Yeah. So it is. So the script is written, but we can improvise mm-hmm. the script, and we can move in different places on the set. But there is still those barriers, or not barriers, but guardrails in our reality. In other words, you and I are not going to just get up and start to fly, because those aren't, at least, not. We don't think we can, at least. Uh, <laughs> but generally speaking, there are some guide rails, if you will. This will freak you out, but I, I have played with levitation when I was a kid. Sure. I'm um, sure. Well, I mean, I've talked to yogis who've levitated. Mm-hmm. I've talked no, to. But I was just a kid. I was just playing with it. <laughs> so it's it's possible. There's a lot of possibilities. Uh, well, you could look at it the other way around. Nothing's impossible. That doesn't say totally good because bad things could happen too when you open it up that way. Sure. But that's kind of how I look at it. Nothing's impossible. Um, my, I... my first guru was my mother, and she taught me there's no such thing as can't. I didn't realize years <laughs> later until, you know, I, I was very much more advanced in my studies and maturity, how powerful and wise that was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without question. Um, now, Howard, I'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all my guests. Um, what is your definition of living a good life? Being true to yourself, being authentic. How do you define God? 
our source. That's from where we come. That's from where we're connected to all. And what is the ultimate purpose of life? To expand awareness and connect with every aspect of awareness through the field of love. And where can people find out more about you, the work you're doing, and pick up this amazing book, Dream It to Do It? Thank you. Uh, my website, which is drhowardeisenberg.com. The book's available primarily online uh, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo. It can be ordered at the bookstores, but generally it's most available online. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you have any final words for our audience? I thank you all, you and the audience, for listening. And I hope reflecting on what I'm sharing. And I hope after this, reflecting even more deeply and being enriched by it. My friend, I appreciate you and the work that you're doing in this world. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Alex. Be well. I want to thank Dr. Howard so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 254. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.